Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello. Welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porritt and I'm joined by Matt Withers. Greetings. And Cash Boyle. Hello. How has this week been? Matt? I mean, pretty much like the previous week and the week before that and the week before that and the year before that. What about you guys? Yeah, Groundhog Week, basically. Mm. I had had a conversation... um, with someone earlier today, actually, and he said, "You know, what, it's it's January anyway. January is is, is tough anyway, isn't it? Mm. Um, you know, the Christmas credit card bills have, have have arrived, and it is grim outside, and um, it's still a long way till the summer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it is obviously times ten because we can't even." go to the pub or go out to a restaurant or anything. What can you, both of you, just give me one thing that we should, we could look forward to aim at. Gosh, that's, a, <laughs> that's one to drop on us, isn't it? <laughs> Silence. The, the podcast well, awards. Oh, oh yeah. yeah well, oh, well oh. dropped in. Hey, like yes. it. That's right. Dear listener. I've got that written on my wall. That wasn't spontaneous. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That is right. The New European has, uh, for the second year running, been nominated for Best Political Podcast at the Podcast Publisher Awards, I think is the correct title. Um, last year, we attended and didn't win. Do you remember who did win, Matt? I can't remember who won now. Was it um, this week or? It was. It was It was uh, <clears throat> the week unwrapped the week. with Ollie Mann, I believe. We were We were robbed, frankly. Um, but it is the, it was described to me as the group of death, and it is quite a tough one. Um, the new statesmen, I think, are in there. Is that right this time? Yeah, they are. Statesmen are in there. Other big hitters. Manchester Evening News. I did know that Jerry Scott's podcast with the Yorkshire Post didn't make the list, but um, I, you know, I'm sure maybe maybe next year, Jerry. Um, so yes, thank you very much for listening to this award-nominated podcast. We have been nominated for quite a few awards, and I don't think we've ever won one actually. Um, so maybe this is our time, guys. This is our time. Yeah, I, mean, I, 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 I feel it. I feel a bit like a bit of a fraud though, because I haven't been here for the entire period on which it's been judged. But I'm absolutely going to try and take credit. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think it might be your inclusion that goes over the line, actually. I mean, uh, let's, let's, let's not be hasty. We're looking forward to it, but we're not, we're not excessive. So we will find out if we are indeed victorious. I think not until April. So quite a long way to wait, but that is something to look forward to. And thank you, of course, to uh, the judges who have um, had to listen to this tripe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what we should say, if we're going to be uh, serious, not that the awards aren't, is that, I suppose there's a kind of light at the end of the tunnel now, isn't it? I don't want to use the boosterish language of Boris Johnson, although it's, it's notable that he has tempered that, I think, now. I think the, the message that he should stop um, over-promising and under-delivering seems to be sinking in. Uh, and I think they are letting people know gradually that we're in this one for the long haul. But, you know, fingers crossed, touch wood, everything else, this could be the last one. Do you think it's a little bit of an easier sell now that we've got, and we'll come to the vaccine shortly, but we've got something solid to sort of base our hopes upon? Yeah, because we can see how it might end now. It's Mm. going to take a long time, but, you know, we should give credit uh, where it's due that the vaccine rollout is 
at the moment seems to be going pretty much as well as uh, as anybody could have yeah. hoped for really when yeah. you you yeah. contrast it with the way that the rest of the pandemic has been dealt with uh, yeah. in government so we know that the vaccine is the only way out of this really unless you're a you're a, a backbench conservative MP who appears to have been kicked in the head by a horse, but we could uh, we could get on <laughs> several to, horses. On, we that. could get onto that. Um, I mean, well, yeah, listen, it, we're we're, we're going to get to we'll get to the news. We're going to talk vaccines. We do, of course, very sadly have to um, mention the. I, I don't like the term grim total because it's it's beyond that now, isn't it? I think one death is grim. Um, but 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 after that, we will also be speaking to Kauzar's uh, man, who is not only a, a barrister but also probably doing some of his life's most important work right now because he's the founder of uh, Take the COVID-19 Vaccine uh, Campaign Group. Um, because it's all well and good us saying, you know, good news, but I think we as journalists as well have to play our part to make sure that we are um, getting out the fact that this vaccine is safe and it is the route out. So um, so Kauzar's going to come on uh, in, a, in a few minutes and talk to us about that campaign and why it's so important that we do. There will be, of course... A cash and burn, as always, as well, um, a little bit later on. So, um, firstly, let's start with that that press conference and that that awful total. The UK COVID deaths are now above a hundred thousand. Um, I think if anyone had told us this last time last year, you know, we would have been we would have been completely floored by it. Um, and it and it didn't pass unnoticed. Obviously, all the all the nationals and a lot of the regionals as well um, carried fairly sombre front pages. Uh, and, you know, it, it is important that we reflect on the fact that every one of those deaths, although that is a number, is a is a, is a, a mom, a dad, a, you know, a brother, a sister, a, a son or a daughter. And, um, and, and that's what Boris Johnson tried to do. But Cash, how did you think he fared in that in that press conference earlier in the week? I mean, I wouldn't say I think it would be remiss to say much as I dislike him and the dislike is intense it would be remiss to say that he you know isn't impacted in some way by by that by that number you know watching the press conference it's not like it's something he delivered with any kind of sense of frivolity or you know remote sense of contentment or satisfaction The, the the weight of it clearly has landed on him to some extent I think the problem lies in the fact that when he said the now famous line, I did everything I could, and then this is the number that we're left with, you know, that is very, you know, indisputably open to intense argument because the reality is, and I'd reiterate that I don't disagree that he does feel the weight of all those deaths in some way, but the reality is, I mean, he didn't do everything he could. I mean, actually at the time I tweeted about it because I was so angry at that statement. I mean, when you look at the number of things he didn't do that he could have done early, just off the top of my head, um, didn't close the borders, early doors, hasn't prop, you know, obviously the Conservatives haven't properly funded the NHS for quite a long time. They built the Nightingale NHS hospitals that now look like nothing more than a vanity PR project. Um, they obviously, there was one other thing that they, oh, sorry, they, gave contracts for pretty much every important function to their to their friends and their cronies rather than the best suited people and they absolutely didn't reach the testing capacities early enough or sorry they didn't reach high testing capacity pardon me early enough and that's just off the top of my head there's a list of things that he as the leader of the government could have done earlier but didn't so to answer your question I, I do believe that he conveyed the tone of someone who understands the gravity of this but to say that he did everything he could to prevent the number is disingenuous, in my opinion. Matt? Yeah, I'd agree with absolutely, uh, absolutely everything that's said there. What I found particularly interesting through a kind of media eye was looking at the front pages the following day. Um, and with the exception um, of the Times, which, to its credit, uh, ran a, a kind of grid of pictures of, of the victims of COVID-19, which really emphasize the fact that this you know this has affected people of all of all uh, ages and and races and gender um the other papers the tory supporting papers all ran large pictures of of johnson's face at the press conference and you were very much left uh feeling this this is the real victim here you know yeah. the the poor guy who uh, got his ambition of being world king only to have all, all of it thwarted by being hit with a pandemic. This is 
the person our heart should be going out to. I even made the mistake of reading the the editorial in the Daily Express, which which one should never do for, for hypertension reasons, if, if not anything else. But um, it was absolutely effusive in its praise of his performance, even praising the fact that at one point he even looked down at his feet uh, as if that was, you know, an absolute sign of um, of statesmanship. Um, I, I think that they got the tone very, very badly wrong. Um, I think, yeah, I'd agree with Evan Kasher. I, 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 as for how much responsibility he takes, I, I can't see inside the guy's head, you know, so it's difficult to know. But um, that was probably only the second time that I think he'd really hit the right notes during this whole pandemic. I said the first time was the speech he made directly after coming out of the intensive care unit himself. Mm. Um, so, yeah... Doesn't that reflect really badly on him in the sense that the two um, occasions in which he's been prompted to say something that could be even possibly genuine is first when he experienced what has been told to be, you know, a close to death experience, number one. And then secondly, when the numbers are just so incredibly tragic and undeniable that he that he kind of had to. There was no there's no escaping the tragedy associated with 100,000 deaths. So isn't it like in my view, it's isn't it really a bad indictment on him as a character that ultimately those two situations and their severity are the only two that have prompted such a genuine response. Well, well I think, absolutely. I, yeah. Yeah. I, my view on that is, is not, I'm not surprised because, you know, Boris Johnson is, is by his very nature, not a serious politician, is he? He's a, he's a celebrity politician. And um, the, the way that he, has got to such incredible high offices by telling everyone everything's great and it's going to be fine, even if it isn't. So, mm. I mean, I thought that the, I thought that the, you know, as Cash said, there is no doubt um, that Boris Johnson, um, you know, he's not taking any pleasure out of this. He's not, yeah. you know, there's no, there's no evil going on behind the scenes. He understands the uh, the, the gravitas of these figures. He does. I thought that the newspapers the next day were also very interesting, and I think they will be poured over in years to come. The Sun especially. Um, and and I agree that the Times got it right. They wiped all the colour off their front as well, which I thought was a really good move. Yeah, it was very visually striking, it, wasn't it, it? It really was. But I think the newspapers just got it wrong. The focus of that day was not a struggling prime minister. It wasn't a political thing at all, and it shouldn't have been. It was... It was the fact. It was a. It was a moment for us to, to just try somehow to comprehend this huge amount of um, of, of of death and this you know awful awful milestone. Just like every death is an awful milestone, of course. Um, anyway, let's let's move swiftly on to the vaccine row, um, which also <laughs> I'm not sure the papers have really covered themselves in glory on this one as well. Um, Matt, do you just want to talk us through what, so where we're at with it at this at this stage? Unless there's anybody better qualified. All right, I'll do it. <laughs> well, well, the the basically there is a row brewing, which I imagine will last for some time. And the the, the, the basic, put very very simply, the amount of vaccines that the EU hopes to receive from AstraZeneca um, for EU countries there is a potential shortfall in that there is a potential uh, that it won't be what was what was agreed um now that to me seems to be an issue that astrazeneca and eu have but what i've definitely seen um within our uh, certain elements of the of the media is that they're trying to make this into a into a, a brexit row now firstly what i would say is the EU's language on this, in my, in my opinion, in part, has been pretty poor. Um, I think I think that they would quite like to frame it in in a certain way as as well. Or certain people would, not all of them, of course. Um, but but really, this has got, as far as I can tell, very little to do with the with the UK because the UK has also got an agreement with AstraZeneca. Um, I'll give you some of the figures per one hundred people, and these will be slightly out of date by the time you hear this, of course. But I think um, the UK is vaccinated. About ten and a half people, um, so I don't know if that's ten and a short one, but ten and a half people per one hundred um, have been vaccinated in the UK. I think France is shy of two people. Germany is two point one. 
I, you know, there, there is a growing anger among EU countries, especially in Germany, I think, as to why they are lagging behind. And I, I wonder if some of the arguments with regards to this are kind of prompted by European politics. And, um, and really, I think, I mean, I, I'm a big believer in that this is, a, this is a crisis that cannot be solved in one country. It needs to be solved globally. You know, we're not going to get through this by shutting our borders and making sure we're all right. But to be fair to the UK, we, you know, we, we were pretty fast off the mark with this. And, you know, we, the credit where it's due, more than 7 million people, vastly more than 7 million people now vaccinated. Um, what, I mean, Matt, do you want to jump in there? I mean, what's your, what's your view? Is this, is this people trying to, trying to frame this as a, as a Brexit row, as a, as a spat between the UK and the EU when actually it's a row that very, I mean, if you read the FT's coverage, this is about AstraZeneca and the EU. If you read the Express's coverage or even the Mail's coverage, front page, the Mail on Thursday was very much this. This is a row between the UK and and the and the EU. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, the the FT is a serious paper whose journalists understand the European Union uh, and and its various bodies, and the Express's aren't. Um, yeah, it's not a political row. It, it's um, it, it's it's a, a contractual row. Um, that, that's very limited within within the borders of the EU, which regrettably we're not part of. Um, I find it quite interesting. It is it is the the anti EU media who are who are yeah. having achieved everything they want are, are still determined to flog the EU day in day out, and you know the various uh, you know Tory outriders on 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 Twitter etc. I find it very interesting, actually, that the the senior ranks of the uh, of the cabinet have have not risen to this. No. Um, in a similar way to, you know, that Keir Starmer will refuse to play um, the Tories' games over culture wars and statues, etc. It's very interesting, and I'd love to know the internal dynamics behind this, how the decision was made uh, to not play this game. You know, Boris Johnson could have used PMQs this week uh, to indulge in in. Um, mockery of the eu and rallies troops with um you know this shows how we were right to get out and the gentleman opposite would wish us to still be part of this yeah. um and they they've chosen not to to take that route now, that maybe because um you know clearly there are still a great deal of tensions around um exports which are increasingly rearing their head and and, and goodwill is needed on on both sides but that's never previously reigned boris johnson in uh, so, from a political point of view, I find that particularly interesting. But yeah, the, the the actual the actual row, such as there is one, is is, is contractual rather than political. And it's important that we remember that. I think, and and also, um, I, I I I I fear, or well, I'm glad that I think perhaps there's a few more cool heads and adults in the room than there were if Dominic Cummings had still been around, for example. I think this row might have potentially become one that Boris Johnson would have waded into if we'd have still had the, um, you, know, you know, the Brexit campaign group uh, running the scenes in number 10. I think the uh, the discussion of vaccines overall, uh, guys, I think it's probably a good point to bring our guest in because I think we've got ah, Kazar Zaman with us. Kazar, are you there? Good afternoon, Cash. Afternoon. Yes, I'm here. Oh, great. Thank you so much for uh, coming on to speak with us because one of the things that we speak about regularly on this podcast, particularly in the last few weeks, is about the relative success of the UK's vaccination rollout program so far in terms of what we're seeing. But the issue of vaccine hesitancy is one that's very prevalent still. And that was why I wanted to speak to you about the campaign that you have founded, which is the Take the COVID-19 Vaccine as a national campaign. And I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the motivation in terms of incepting that campaign. Yes, of course. Thank you very much, uh, Cash, for inviting me on. Uh, just to give you some background, it's a campaign really uh, that came about from my own ex- from my own experiences. So I'm from a, a Bangladeshi background. My mother's uh, Bangladeshi. She's yeah, she understands uh, English, uh, but she doesn't speak English very well. Uh, when the first vaccines were being approved by uh, the UK uh, government, the MHRA, uh, 
at that time, I asked my mother, who's at, in a high risk category from COVID-19, whether she, she would be willing to take the vaccine. And she said no. And her concerns were really about the ingredients, the side effects. Uh, she didn't have the information in, in Bengali, which is what she wanted to understand uh, the information in. And she had uh, general questions uh, based on some misinformation she had heard. So I went about researching that information. It took me over an hour to find that information for each of the vaccines. And I felt if me as a barrister who deals with voluminous material on a daily basis, it's taking me an hour, then other people must be having this problem. So I spoke to lots of people and uh, that was really the spark of this campaign where um, we've, we've gone national. I've had I've incredible interest. I mean, I've had an email recently from a local councillor in Kent saying they've got a large Nepalese community of about 11,000 who want our information on the website that we've produced in Nepalese. Uh, so it's it's really a, a, a born out of my own experiences, but a resource that's really uh, needed uh, for people across the country. Absolutely. And I think it's incredible that you've been able to collate and put all of the relevant information for all the vaccines on the website so quickly. I think it's particularly in multiple languages, as, as you alluded to before. I mean, on that sort of um, on that on that note, I, I when I, you know, I've interacted previously, noticed that in terms of the campaign, there are some seriously big hitters on the advisory team. Sir Stephen O'Brien, CBE, Dr. Halima Begum from the Running Me Trust, to name just two of them. And I was just wondering how has it been to work with such a, an impressive group of people and what do you feel the campaign has achieved sort of so far? Look, they're, they're, they're great figures and I'm really pleased uh, they're on board. Uh, they're people who have great reach on uh, important issues related to uh, increasing uptake, particularly within minority communities. And I think uh, what's been great is having the expertise across the board. And what is really unique about this campaign, I've had people internationally reach out to me, in fact, in the four weeks uh, that we've been going, uh, because what it brings together is expertise. So we've got Professor Freeman, who's the leading uh, hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy researcher his research 15,000 people across the UK specifically on taking the vaccine uh, so he brings that expertise then we've got Stephen O'Brien who, who ran a health trust uh, uh, in the UK one of the largest parts NHS trust we've got academics we've got community leaders and actually bringing all of uh, those experiences is what's necessarily necessary in dealing with vaccine hesitancy because it's not a simple question about providing that information in a, in a language which is understandable. But those who are historically vaccine hesitant are people who only take information from what we call trusted advisors. So even me saying to someone who's vaccine hesitant, take the vaccine because of this information won't cut it. The, the level at which uh, they will be persuaded if they're hesitant is when a local GP or a family member says, look, uh, take it because these are the uh, benefits. So what we're doing is providing that information, but at the same time, we're working with local groups, local communities to say, look, it, it, it has to be done at the most local level. So it's been great working with these individuals. And as I say, we've, we've only been going for four weeks, uh, but we've had interest i mean we've had interest from the world health organization and across the world in fact because it's quite a unique approach we're deploying absolutely i think that's what really brought it to my attention initially when i when i saw it independently of this and i thought this is an incredible sort of almost like broad church of individuals trying to i suppose repair the the mistrust that i feel vaccine hesitancy is born out of perhaps your opinion is different in terms of the origins of vaccine hesitancy but i've always felt that it's it's a mis it's a trust issue and i i suppose that brings me on nicely to the question of vaccine hesitancy in respect of different ethnic groups in different communities because as you've said um previously the only way out of this pandemic is vaccine you know is vaccine is a successful vaccination program so could you sort of explain in, in better words than I can muster the differences in terms of minority communities and vaccine hesitancy and I suppose how we go about eradicating that problem? Absolutely. So let me start off with the figures. So the government have only just uh, recently in the last couple of days published uh, vaccine uptake across the country uh, in respect of particular communities. And the figures are actually quite shocking. I've been talking about this since December, but it's only been released because I was hearing some of this from local communities. But in the white community, the uptake has been 
uh, and this is a, a broad group of 80% within the Asian community, and that's all, all subsets of Asian communities, it's been about 45%. And the shocking one is amongst the black community, which is about being 20%. Um, which is really shocking when I first heard of this uh, a few weeks ago, um, but it's just been released. Um, and I think uh, what the issues are, are very bespoke to those communities. So within the Asian communities, what, what I'm hearing from those working on this now on the ground and dealing with it, it's a combination of a language, it's a combination of it being new, the fact that it's it's been rolled out so fast. There's a particular issue within Asian communities at the moment uh, where uh, there's a rumor that's gone round about it, it, it affecting uh, fertility uh, ingredients, uh, particularly within the, uh, the the Muslim or the Jewish community. That's uh, that's featured prominently within uh, the uh, the black community. It's more broader ones. Uh, it's it's more concerns about uh, historic injustices from uh, previous uh, vaccination uh, efforts and, and 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 how that panned out, and also about inequalities. So lots of the black community groups. Uh, uh, I'm talking to are saying, well, uh, safety is, of course, an important issue, but we don't feel necessarily valued by the uh, by the health services or our, our engagement with the health services haven't historically been good, which is why the uptake hasn't been uh, good. So they're actually uh, common themes in terms of safety and more information, but there are particular bespoke challenges for each of those communities. And one of the great things we've managed to do in this campaign is really connect the dots. So if there's a community group we've had in Birmingham saying we're trying to deal with this locally, I've said, look, there's another group in, in a part of London which is doing this work, work together and let's try and deal with this because, you know, it, 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 the, the clock is ticking. All of us have to be vaccinated. In fact, it's a world effort. And the sooner we deal with it, the sooner we come out of social distancing and national lockdowns. Absolutely. And I think you know, remove or getting out of, you know, national lockdowns and social distancing is, is is a collective desire. I think we all we all want that. But as you said, the issues, particularly, you know, according to each, you know, ethnic community are so bespoke and distinct that it requires such a tailored approach, which is obviously what your campaign is is masterminding so far. I mean, you've been you've been going for, for four weeks and you seem to have achieved a lot in, in that very short period of time. What does the landscape over the next couple of months look like? Is it more of the same or is there going to be a more tailored approach moving forward? Yes, the, the, the approach we're really working on is really, uh, we're, we're acting almost as an umbrella at this stage. So really connecting the dots, because as I said earlier, we think even us on, on the level we're working aren't the best people, the best person or the best individuals to persuade uh, communities and those vaccine hesitant are your own family, your own friends, your own GP. That's the level at which we need to get to people. So one of the immediate successes that we've had is uh, we've had a meeting with the government's vaccines task force which is the main task force dealing with all the way from procurement of the vaccines to vaccinations uh, is to suggest that when when a surgery calls up an individual and says come and take your vaccine if someone says no uh, there's a volunteer that that picks that phone up to them and says well why why not what are your concerns? How can we allay those concerns and fears? And that hasn't been happening because understandably the NHS has been firefighting and going with what we call the coalition of the willing. So if you say yes, that's fine, but no effort has been made with persuading those who say no. So that's happening with suggested volunteers and that's been taken up right at the very uh, highest levels of the NHS. That's an immediate success uh, we've had as a result of uh, one of the meetings that we had and the individuals we took, took along. So in terms of uh, going forward, it's more about engaging with local community groups. Uh, we've had lots of approaches from all sorts of uh, different communities. I mean, I mentioned the Nepalese community, you know, I wasn't fully aware about the particular need there, and it's really going to be organic. So a bit of us campaigning on issues, but also we want to hear what the very, very local groups are saying and how we can connect uh, the dots. Oh, absolutely. And I think, do you, do you believe that if this approach works successfully in respect of vaccine hesitancy in, in certain or in, in different minority communities do you believe it's something that could be used moving forward to repair or rebuild or improve trust in respect to other health issues because you, you mentioned earlier that perhaps people are wary because they haven't had the best interaction with the NHS previously relative to other to other issues and I was just wondering whether you think this is an approach that could work beyond 
the coronavirus vaccine. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting point, uh, Cash. I think it, it's certainly a model that could work because historically, if, if one looks at the uh, health inequalities and injustices which it, which which people have sought to challenge, it's really been quite driven by the NHS or bodies within the NHS. What what our campaign is very slowly um, uh, approving is actually you need a more holistic approach in dealing with some of these injustices, and that means bringing in the researchers, the campaigners, the community to leaders, the NHS, politicians, all sections of society, even business leaders, for example, uh, because they have an important role in promoting uh, healthy living or any other health-related issue within the workplace. So having that holistic approach is really, really important. And I, and I hope certainly we're creating a model here uh, to show that it can work, um, but it takes time and it takes a lot, lot of effort. I mean, the effort and the time that you're putting in is, you know, absolutely commendable. I mean, I, I have just a couple more questions before I let you go. And once again, I, I you know, we really appreciate you giving some of your time uh, for this incredibly important issue. I suppose, firstly, uh, you mentioned at the start that your your mum is, um, you know, she is reluctant or she's hesitant um, because of the, the issues that you outlined previously. Firstly, does she know that you're heading up this campaign? And secondly, has it changed her stance at all? Uh, yes, so she knows that I'm uh, I'm working on this uh, because she's aware um, through uh, some messages I've sent in the very early hours of the morning working on this uh, <laughs> after after court hours, um, and she's uh, she's she's understood the material online. Uh, she will take it now, uh, but she's also adopted a half house approach, uh, which is the middle group of individuals who are saying, "Look, I want to take it, but maybe I want to wait and see." Uh, when before other people have taken it so one of the th campaigns that uh, we're sl uh, very uh, soon going to launch is called phone a friend so if you've taken the vaccine phone a friend and say look I've taken the vaccine it's safe uh, you'll get a letter from the NHS you take it so I think it's really about encouraging people so she's she's getting there she's she said she wants to take it but I think we're just waiting uh, for the letter uh, for her to say absolutely yes well absolutely I, th I think that's completely spot on in respect of the holistic approach you mentioned previously it's that you don't you probably can't change a, a, you know a reluctant person's mind you know 100 percent immediately but with your with your mum it's that she's now at that wait and see approach whereas before she was categorically no so that feels like a, a progression as far as i can can see it and it's, it's just brilliant and phenomenal what you're doing final question um where can people sort of find more information um on the campaign and what's sort of the best way to engage with it if they want to do so yeah, so it's www.takethecovid19vaccine.com. I apologize, it's so long. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but uh, uh, the way we've worked out uh, is the simple messages uh, are, the, are the easier. So all the information is, is on our website. There's a volunteer section. So if you want to get involved, so for example, the NHS are doing a brilliant vaccination center uh, support. So you could help in uh, administering the, the vaccines, or you could even help an elder person uh, to to their appointment so to give you an example I don't live too far from Queen Mary University uh, I know a very elderly uh, 92 year old woman fantastic uh, she's of Jewish background she has no family uh, members left uh, in this country she was evacuated during the war um, myself and Neil Jameson one of our advisors took her to her appointment because she needed the help so there's lots of ways uh, individuals can can help and the NHS is actively asking people uh, to help so all the information is available on our website. That's perfect uh, you're an absolute superhero between being a barrister a campaigner finding up the, you know finding this campaign I feel I feel inferior in your presence but <laughs> Far from um, instead I will just say um, you know thank you very much for, for coming on giving us your time and as I said we you just hope that your campaign continues to go from strength to strength um, as you've evidenced over the last four weeks so thank you very much Kaiser. Thank you very much, Cash. Thank you. What an absolutely, I've just sat back and listened. I mean, hugely inspiring campaign. It's take the COVID19vaccine.com. Go there and have a look if if uh, if someone needs um, a little bit of extra um, persuasion, should we say. But uh, what a guy. What a guy, yeah, he's, Cash. He's, he's, he's great. I mean, I I sort of obviously where he lives is on one of my reporter patches and I came across what he was doing and I thought this is really really impressive I mean you look at his background as well in terms of the fact that he's still working as a barrister he's still 
practicing um and yeah he's just a really impressive individual and he's assembled a really formidable team as well there's some big hitters there as i mentioned and yeah just really full of admiration for him well, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on and, um, and you know, a, re- a really worthy campaign. So do please, do please uh, check it out. Now, before we have a little, uh, oh, we're going to talk about Joe Biden, actually, aren't we? But before we do that, I do need to speak to you about my very favourite topic. Do you know what that is? Is it bye, 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 sell, sell, sell? It is indeed me think, being a sort of stay-at-home on the sofa gordon gecko now free trade which i mentioned last week and i'm going to mention it again um is something that i actually use it's, it's really really cool so investing of course is one of the best ways to grow wealth over the long term i think we're all agreed on that however high commissions clunky products from traditional stockbrokers can make it complicated for people to start meanwhile trillion dollar companies get built but very few people benefit from that wealth creation. Free trade, however, is on a mission to change that. Um, they are breaking down barriers uh, by opening up stock investing to everyone. While other brokers charge up to 12, 12 pounds, 12 quid for every single trade, free trade doesn't charge any commission fees. So you can invest and keep more of your profits. It is an award-winning investment app. It's used by well over a quarter of a million people. It is FCA authorized and FSCS protected, quite a mouthful that. And it lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, investment trusts, all without commissions. Uh, it won the British Bank Awards, at the British Bank Awards, two years in a row it won, uh, 2019 and 2020, for best online trading platform. Really cool app. Um, and it, it really does make it simple for people with very little experience of this kind of thing, like me, um, but also experts as well. So you can start investing from just £2. There's no speculative products such as uh, CFDs, Spread Britain, um, or products uh, with leverage, and uh, they don't do day trading. This is all about long-term investing with a transparent pricing model, no hidden fees or inflated spreads. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, several account types. So there's a general investment account. There's a stocks and shares ISA. You can also sign up for uh, Free Trade Plus, which uh, for a little bit more allows you to do more advanced orders. There's a bigger stock universe for you to explore. And very soon, there's going to be uh, some self-invested personal pensions available um, as well. And the good news, guys, for you is we've got a special offer. So go to freetrade.io forward slash Brexit. Uh, and if you register and fund your account, you will get a randomly allocated free share worth between £3 and £200. It could be one of the big names, Greg, Rightmove, Apple. Um, my Blackberry's doing very well today, for example. Or it could be the next big thing. Who knows? Um, so for more information, visit now uh, freetrade.io now. When you invest, your capital is at risk. The value of investments can go up as well as down, and you may receive back less than your original investment. Cash, tell me about Joe Biden. Joe Biden is lovely. He's wonderful. <laughs> he's, you know, um, I mean, he's had a... He's quite cuddly. Which, I mean, I would definitely give him a cuddle, would you? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, sort of even, I don't know. No, well, not at the moment. Jacob Rees-Mogg seems cuddly in comparison with uh, with Donald Trump. But yeah, he's... Um... Uh, no, J- Jacob Rees-Mogg's all bony and he's like, I mean, I'm quite bony and he, he's the same, you know. I think that Joe Biden, I think he'd be a good hugger. Oh, no, I think so as well. I think you'd get like sort of both arms around the back and nice tight yeah. squeeze, not like... Yeah. And I know you're both you're both men, so this is might not go down well. But when you see like, sometimes when you see like guys hug, it's like a slap on the back. Because you don't want to be like too intimate, but like when really, guys hug each other. Yeah, well, it's not like that when me and Matt hug. I, I, well, you're some unique guys, but like uh, it's usually it's usually horizontal. Okay, so Joe Biden. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, he does look like he'd be very very cuddly. I mean, he looks like what he is, which is like a granddad. Yeah, like but a granddad also, that happens to be in charge of the country. He just um, he just feels like a good guy who's well intentioned. You'd be happy for him to babysit the kids. You feel like you could trust him. He'll make the right decisions. And at the end, when you come and collect the kids, he'll give you a good hug and he'll mean it. But he's been yeah. doing more important things than hugging this week, hasn't he? 
Yes, he has. I mean, he, he, as he promised to do, he sort of has ripped up, you know, what Trump sort of had put in over his, you know, terrible four-year tenure. And, you know, just amongst the things that he's already changed is he's already gotten rid of the, you know, the the, the Muslim travel ban, which is obviously where Trump banned um, any Muslim travelers from, I think it was six, um, six countries. So he's, he's gotten rid of that. Um, he has strengthened the like the program from the Obama era, which was the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. He also, in terms of like economically, because obviously America, like here, is beleaguered, you know, because of the pandemic, he actually has unveiled an even bigger relief package. I think it's $1.9 trillion. And he's given new stimulus payments of like $1,400 to Americans, you know, relative to this next stage in the pandemic. I mean, trying to think what else he's done. He's done... Oh, yeah. Sorry. The other thing that really popped into my mind, they've rejoined the Paris climate. Yes. That's something that Donald Trump uh, basically was like, no, thank you. I don't believe in climate change. So just off the top of my head, those are, you know, three areas, climate change, immigration and the economy where already he's making his presence felt as a more humane president. God bless America. Is she back, Matt? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I'm kind of divided on this because, yes, all the mood music is um, is right. You know, it all feels to people like us yeah. um, and, and probably the overwhelming majority of people listening to this podcast. It feels right. You know, it, it's it's grown ups back in charge again. You know, as I said last week, it's kind of the Barmer's third administration. Um he's he's doing all the right things um just add to that i've just read this morning about putting a ban on arms sales to saudi arabia now you could kind of think well yes obviously but very fat that that is news um shows where america's been over the last few years allowing trans people to serve in the armed forces again that it was that was the other one sorry i just realized the light bulb moment sorry matt go on absolutely absurd um kind of culture war change that, that that trump made um that said um, we're we're looking at it from this side of the Atlantic with our kind of um, European social democratic probably eyes, and we forget there's an awful lot of people in the United States of America for whom this is the far left in charge. You know, being whipped up by um, the the lunatic fringe of the Republican Party and and their, um, their supportive media. I mean, you mentioned the the the, the, the Paris um, climate change accords because ted cruz was straight out of the block so well this shows that biden cares more about the citizens of paris than he cares about the citizens of pittsburgh now mm. either a he he genuinely doesn't understand what the paris climate change is and doesn't understand it's just the place that it was it was signed or b more likely that he does understand that but he knows that that's going to whip up part of the base that could take him to the White House in four mm. years' time. Yeah, yeah. Um, just looking at some of the stats um, I was reading this morning, 56% of Republican voters would like to see Trump run again in four years' time. 30% believe that the Republican Party is not sufficiently conservative and would like to see Trump break off and form an even more right-wing party. So um, while on the surface everything seems kind of like it's getting back to normal, um, you know that base is not is not gone away. You know the, 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 they've not um, people have not suddenly got on board the um, the Biden Amtrak train as as, as it were, um, and and that um, that hard right that the, the, the people who have been infused by Trump over the last few years um, they are going to keep fighting. And what we see as um, you know a nice warm new. Uh, cuddly, as you say, U.S. administration is basically Chairman Mao to them. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I agree. <coughs> Excuse me, and I obviously set you up beautifully for that. Um, I, I think the biggest challenge Biden has got is changing at least some of the, he's not going to change all, the, I mean, they were always there, weren't they, at some level, and I guess it, it's about changing as many minds as he possibly can from that base that um, that fell for, for Trump's nonsense. I mean, I argue that, you know, what, what was he supposed to do? He, mm-hmm. he, you know, got elected on a particular mandate and, you know, he won't and shouldn't let the ideology of the far right affect him and his ability to no. implement that. I think, like you, like you both allude to, that faction isn't going away, but they're not going away whether Joe Biden makes these sweeping changes or not. 
but it's not about but what I, what i think what I, what i mean is it's not about um moving towards them no. in order to it, yeah, it's ab- it's about education and you know it, it, we wouldn't have left the EU if Tony Blair's government, in my opinion, had done more to outwardly and obviously educate a population about the um, why it was important, um, what you know, what 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 the good things about it we were getting out, rather than just ignoring the banana bendy bananas bullshit and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, if there'd have been better things in place to to promote the EU rather than just hope that those people that didn't like it went away, we might be in a much better situation than we are now. And I think that is what Biden needs to do. He needs to say, we're doing this. This is why. And hey, this is the outcome. And isn't it great? And just sure. hopefully, gradually, and I'm not sure four years is going to be long enough, um, but hopefully, um, you know, they can... They, it, 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 it can we can just gradually and it will be gradual i'm afraid start to move away from those um from those trump yeah i just like to say i i wasn't suggesting in any way that, that that biden should be doing anything that placates that that wing i i was just um suggesting that we shouldn't get carried away that that no. overnight um america has taken a, a decisive switch back to what we would deem normality oh yeah no i think you're i think you're spot on that i wasn't um i didn't think that that's kind of the inference you were making it was more just that my i don't know i feel like my my view is that if he had done anything but what he has done that kind of emboldens them further even indirectly but you're right like to say that they're not going away regardless of what he does so yeah Mm -hmm. i i I do agree with you matt um just a little bit of breaking news which you guys will already know because we know you don't just get your news from us at the moment um, it seems that the uh, the uh, EU visited the AstraZeneca um, lab in Brussels yesterday. The EU need to be just a little bit careful, I would suggest, because that is that will be reported as raided. And I just think this is going to get messy, guys. By this time next week, we'll be this will be seriously messy. Right it's then, really weird sort of like subversion of kind of the power dynamic because right up until Brexit, because obviously the the UK really were the party that needed to broker a deal more than the eu bloc did then all of a sudden the, the power very much was in the the eu's hands whereas with this because obviously the uk's um vaccination rate on the whole is much more prolific so far than all of the countries in the eu in the eu it's like it's just interesting how the, the tables have kind of turned in a way i don't know it if you sort of see that but i you know or maybe i'm just hallucinating and just sort of no, imagining right. dynamics but it's it's a bit of an interesting kind of subversion it is and you know the german media and it wasn't built which i love but um you know might have some <laughs> it's only i love it because i love tabloid newspapers but um the german media is is getting more and more um angry and starting to say you know is is it actually the case that that britain can vaccinate quicker because it hasn't got to deal with the bureaucracy of the EU and that is going to be panicking people inside the EU. Um, I don't necessarily think that is the case. I think just for once we were actually on the ball and we actually moved quicker. Um, I think it's as simple as that. I don't think we're not special. We just got something right for once. We're a better country, Richard. (laughs) We're a better country. We're just a better country. (laughs) It is as simple as that. Let's take a little breather and we'll be back with Cash and Burn. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Welcome back. Right, let's go straight into it. Cash, do your worst. Do your worst. Um, Okay, so for this week's Cash and Burn, I think I did the same thing last week in terms of picking a group of people. I think it was also the Tories, but I can't help it. That's what the villainous cards tell me. So again, it's the Tories. Um, And this time it's because they all abstained on the vote that Labour called via an an opposition, pardon me, um, day debate motion to, they called a vote to basically enshrine and protect um, workers' rights post-Brexit because workers' rights, particularly the right to holiday pay, overtime uh, and the 48-hour week, those three in particular are EU EU directive-led. And so obviously now that we're no longer part of the EU and therefore not subject to the judgments of the ECJ, the, you know, the UK no longer in theory, well, not even in theory, realistically, they are no longer bound by those principles. So in the middle of, in the middle of a pandemic, 
um, when basically there's huge amounts of unemployment for one, but beyond that, in the middle of a pandemic where people are dying, where 100,000 people have died, um, the Conservative Business Secretary, whose name eludes me, but I will remember probably at four o'clock this morning, but he decides to sort of say, okay, well, now that we've left the EU, workers' rights are, in inverted commas, under review or could be under review. So effectively what that means is that they could they could strip them away. They're not legislatively bound to keep them. So long story short, Labour obviously, um, six Labour MPs, including Keir Starmer, um, filed the, this motion looking for a vote to protect those rights, arguing fairly that in the climate that we're in and just beyond, but particularly in the climate that we're in now, we should not be looking to strip away workers' rights that are very, very fair and equitable and don't need any kind of repair or alteration. They're fine as they are. Leave them. Uh, and the, the Tories, you know, abstained on it. So it kind of once again shows that, you know, the whole shtick of really caring about people, really caring about people's sort of well-being, mental well-being, you know, the, the country and people's individual recovery post-coronavirus do they really care if, if the whole concept of protecting workers' rights that are very reasonable, if that whole concept, as soon as we leave the EU, is immediately subject to potential scrutiny and, and removal or reform, then how can they argue that they actually care? Because that's not where their, sh- their priority should be right now anyway. But beyond that, they should want to protect their workers in general. And the fact that they don't makes them my villain of the week. I think we can all agree with that and the business secretary is um is quasi quarting thank you sorry i completely the name went off the top of my head and i couldn't remember let, as you said you know it's always the tories let's um let's spread a bit of a problem around as well and and give a little wave to the lexiteers like uh, owen jones and george galloway yeah. who said that leaving the eu you know was the, being in the eu was the only thing that was preventing us from being a socialist paradise and that there was a strong left-wing argument for for leaving they seem to have piped down recently yeah, I haven't heard very much from them at all. So that's a very good point. Um, and yeah, it is always the Tories. I don't actually, um, I'll actively try to not make it that next week. It just it just so happened to be. That's fair enough. They are the, the government. government. They are, I know. But you're right that there is there is plenty of a program, as you mentioned. Great word, by the way. I really like that word um, okay. to, to share around. And, 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 and we should really. Well, I guess that's about it. Um, we've kind <laughs> of come to the end of another. We're almost at the end of another another uh, difficult week but we're only a week away from the super bowl you're a big nfl fan i always forget this good news i am yeah i'm a, if you got I, I i go to the nfl games when they're in london there weren't any last year obviously i very much doubt there'll be any this year but it is a very i mean it's basically if you were to take a clone of ninety thousand copies of me that is what Wembley Stadium <laughs> is like it's just middle-aged men it who is. used to watch Channel 4 in my the brother's 80s. a massive fan of it and he's not I mean he's 31 is that middle-aged uh no it's not he's no but he's he a would massive be... fan he supports the um the Raiders is that right ah the the uh the now they Las were, they, Vegas they, Raiders. they were in Oakland or something and now they're in Las Vegas that's correct yeah. is that right and they were know. in LA before that in Oakland then LA then Oakland now Las Vegas very, I mean, very movable. Yeah, no, they he are, really, eh? he really, he really likes it, and tried to explain it to me once, and I got bored. But it's a very um, difficult sport to explain it, but, but um, and it, it isn't just big guys running into each other. It's actually a, a very. Well, it's very ta- according to my according to Tieran and my brother. He was like, it's incredibly tactical, and I'm like, very. this is it's two a.m. Go away. <laughs> like, it's very tactical. Um, yes, but I am one of those NFL saddles and have been for many years. This is my. It's, oh God! How long have I? It's, I was seven, so I mean, yeah, I'm in my thirty-third year of uh, of loving the NFL. Yeah, you've been to the games, haven't you, Matt? A couple of times. Yeah, I have. I've, I've been to games at Wembley and uh, Twickenham. Um, it's not really my game, but I, I've got a few friends who are big fans, so I've I've tagged along a few times. I'm more of a baseball guy. I have. Yeah. I had tickets for both the MLB games that were supposed to be played at the London Stadium uh, last summer. Obviously, didn't go ahead, but I did go to the previous summer, um, and that was even more interesting in terms of the, the, the makeup of the crowd. I'd say about fifty percent of people had come from either New York or Boston to come and see their team play in London, Ooh. and then twenty-five percent of probably people like me—that that strange proportion of, of Brits who love baseball—and then twenty-five percent are people who clearly didn't know what was uh, <laughs> what was going on. Uh, and I, unfortunately, I had a group of them uh, in in front of me 
who um, very, very well-spoken uh, lads who didn't know the rules of the game, but found it amusing for the entirety of the of the game to keep shouting out things like, hit it for a six, old boy. Uh, which, uh, as you can imagine, was really, really amusing the 28th time one of them said it. <laughs> that, is, uh, that is funny. I, I, did you bump into Ed Miliband when you were at the baseball? Because he's a massive baseball fan, isn't he? He is, he? He is and I, I think uh, he is... I think he's a Red Sox fan, he is. isn't he? he yeah, is. and it, it was it was the Yankees and the Red Sox in the game, so he may well have been there. Yeah, and you almost certainly was because you might remember when they they won the World Series, oddly titled, <laughs> but Americans think that America is the world. They won the World Series, didn't they? The Red Sox and Ed Miliband was tweeting at like four a.m. about it, and I think maybe even had some engagements the next day and was beaming because they lived out there for a little bit. The That's Miliband, right. Didn't what they? I what I would love to have seen um, there was. Quite a lot of, as much as there was any coverage in, in the, the UK media of these games, quite a lot of it centred uh, on the fact that there was a, a metre-long hot dog on sale for £24. Wow. I would have loved to have seen Ed Miliband wrestle with a metre-long hot dog. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, my goodness. You, you, know, you know what made me, made me sort of think when you're talking about Ed Miliband, and, like, I don't know if we've ever dis- you've, you've ever discussed this on the podcast before, but aren't there politicians like Ed Miliband, for example, who are like so much more impressive, like out of leadership yeah. positions? Yeah. Like Theresa May, I think, is actually probably better as a backbencher in terms of like effectiveness. And I feel like Ed Miliband's similar. I feel like he's great in his current role. Ed Miliband, st- Ed Miliband's stock would have um, would have would have stayed permanently fairly high had it not been for that leadership tilt. Um, and yeah. he he. Because he he is good, he is good in his current role, and um, yeah, it was it was a strange detour for him, really. I think it had oh well, we could talk about Ed Miliband another time and the sibling rivalry that went on there. Um, but let's stuff that we it's nice when we're in such grim times and it's dark already outside and it's rubbish. Although I do have some daffodils on my desk here. Um, That's cute. Yeah, I love daffodils. Is there anything that you've come across? outside of politics and coronavirus and Brexit this week that you think people should be taking a look at? Matt. I'm talking about culture rather than just, oh, I saw a nice cloud. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, I, I, you, once again, you've dropped this uh, on me. <laughs> people might I, I don't well, you're answer. both I've professionals. Just, I've just thrown you on the because I don't have a... I don't have a okay, well, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't watch a huge amount of TV, but I do listen just to cartoons. A, a, a lot of... Um, a, <laughs> A lot of podcasts, and this one is is political, but it's not current, so I don't mind dropping this one in. And this is something that um, Ian Dale has started doing called yeah. The Prime Ministers. It's based on a book that he's brought out about all 55 people who've held the office of Prime Minister. And it's been joined now by a weekly podcast. And each week he's joined by an expert to talk through the career of this particular prime minister and he's not doing it importantly chronologically it's all over the place which i think works because a lot of i mean a lot of these people i had not heard of and i'm yeah. learning about them for the first time Gordon so. brown <laughs> yeah there's not Gordon brown, brown yet um i mean there's you know Theresa may is done with rachel sylvester of the times he's, mm. he's very good and was obviously fairly instrumental in, yeah. her, in her winning yeah. the Tory leadership. <laughs> uh, and that was that was particularly uh, interesting. But then, you know, who'd have thought that you would be very interested in a 35-minute podcast about the career of Bonalore, um, who, who yeah. led a, a short and not particularly memorable uh, premiership at the start of the 20th century? Um, you know, some are not for others. There was one this week about um, Joseph Chamberlain, which, uh, sorry, Neville, Neville Chamberlain. Um, Joseph was a much better Chamberlain, actually, <laughs> politically and historically speaking. Uh, Neville Chamberlain. I, and I did think that the, the, uh, the expert, the academic who did that one, was remarkably generous about his, uh, his term in office, which most people would deem to be an utter disaster. But that's what makes it interesting, I think. You know, it's, it's well worth uh, giving us... Obviously, Ian Dale is a... He's a he's a Brexiteer, but he's well, also a he's former a, New European writer. Isn't he, he is. He's a he's a he's a friend of the New European. He's one of the he's one of the one of the characters that we enjoy to have a discussion with. He's, he's never a good interviewer, I think. Yeah, he, he is. You know, good, yeah. he he um he he really does allow the podcast to breathe. Um, so yeah, if if somebody does want to listen to a thirty-five minute podcast about the career of Bonalore and indeed many other prime ministers that may have escaped your attention. Uh, that's one that I've been enjoying. Sounds good. My favourite Ian Dale moment was watching as Damien McBride was interviewed 
um, on the seafront at yes. Brighton. We were all obsessed with Damien McBride that year. And there's a chap who's very well known, certainly to London journalists, who doesn't like nukes. And he tends to stand outside the High Court and Parliament sometimes with a dog, his dog. And it's got like a sort of sandwich board on that says sort of CND stuff and definitely nice chap. Um, he was trying to get in the background of the for his little one-man protest of the interview where Damien McBride he brought a book out, Damien McBride, and um, Ian Dale tried to stop him, and they ended up sort of falling over each other, and the dog, <laughs> the dog bit its owner on the backside. <laughs> it's well worth checking out on YouTube. The dog was fine, Ian was fine, the protester was fine, no one was hurt apart from maybe, you know, a teeth mark in the backside. Um, but I was across the road watching it live and it was absolutely hilarious. The sandwich board um, thing kind of reminds me of, I don't know if either of you have seen like the Father Ted episode where it's like down with this sort of yeah. thing. <laughs> yes. now. Yes. It's very much like that. Actually, that. Yeah. Is, yeah. Um, I actually do want to give a shout out to something I am watching. I just, yeah. I, I started watching it the other day. It's not really happy-go-lucky, but um, it's a sin. No, oh, that's what I was going to talk about. You go on, tell me oh, what you no, think. Okay, well, you, can, you can talk about no, it. No, 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 go for it. We both can. Well, no, just, I mean, I, all I was going to say was I haven't watched it all yet, but, and also I cry quite easily at things like at anything remotely emotive, like visually. Um, but obviously people will know that it's like a mini series of documents, you know, the HIV AIDS crisis in the UK. And um, yeah, it's just really incredible. It's a, you know, it's incredibly poignant. It's incredibly sad. It's a real, from, to my mind, it's a real firm reminder of, the degree and level of stigmatization that existed at that time and the embers of that that still exist now, particularly around um, HIV. And I saw a, a Twitter thread after the first episode came out where, you know, a number of different people were speaking openly about their experiences of living with HIV. And um, it really felt like an empowering thing for me to read, let alone obviously I'm not, you know, in that category, but as someone who just read it, I was like, it's fantastic that people are being so open about living with HIV because as we know it's it's no longer a death sentence whatsoever and it shouldn't be hidden behind a bushel if you like and I I, I find that really empowering. It's an extraordinary that. piece of work I, I haven't seen it all either I've only seen the first three or four I think three I've only seen the first three but already there is um, I'm not going to ruin it for anyone but Neil Patrick Harris or Doogie Hauser, if he's you're he's uh, great He's absolutely sublime, and he's you know, and it's not one of the main parts, but he's brilliant. The chap whose name escapes me now from the years and years, Ole um, Alexander. Ole Alexander, I would say not a particularly likable character, but a wonderful performance. I mean, I think he should. And he's probably, not an actor by profession. No, exactly. But I think he should yeah. probably ditch the sort of kind of okay pop music and, and <laughs> go into acting because it's superb. I also love. Um, the actress who plays Jill in this, uh, who was also in, confusingly, a show last year That's, called um, Lydia West. Is that her name? Absolutely, absolutely stunning. And the subject matter is so so important that a, a generation who probably, I mean, I was young in the eighties, but very much the AIDS pandemic, um, you know, w w was sort of etched on the, on that decade. And um, you know, one of my political heroes actually is someone who I probably don't agree with on very much but um, uh, Norman Fowler you know is a, is a politician who saved without a shadow of a doubt tens of thousands of lives because the Thatcher government at the time did not want the leaflets the public health leaflets to be as brutally honest as they were in talking about um, you know the uh, the methods of transmission, etc. They did mm. not want that getting out, and he absolutely put his foot down and said it must. And um, he's he's still with us, and and I think he is knighted actually. But uh, he is a forgotten hero of that period, um, and you know it's worth mentioning that. But yeah, it's a sin. I'll have you laughing and then crying, but the crying is proper crying. I mean, it is it is really emotional, but it is. Don't dodge it because it's hard work. Cause it's a very important piece of drama. It's done by uh, Russell T Davis, of course, who did you know who's got a, a history of, uh, of of challenging uh, gay issues, of course, queer as folk being the obvious one. But uh, uh, you know he's done an absolutely stunning job. So check that out. Um, and I guess that brings us to the end of another new European podcast. We're hurtling towards the two hundredth edition, actually. Ooh, shiny. Um, which is something to look forward to. Um, so thank you, one and all, 
Um, you can follow me on Twitter if you'd like. Um, I don't say a great deal, but sometimes I retweet some interesting stuff. It's at Porrit, P-O-R-R-I-T-T. Cash, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, at Cash Boyle. Okay. Cash <laughs> Boyle you... as in B-O-Y-L-E. Bravo, yeah. Oscar, Yankee, Lima, Echo. Excellent. Mr. Withers. <laughs> uh, I'm at Matt Withers, M-A-T-T-W-I-T-H-E-R-S. And I guess we should also say that it's probably worth following the brilliant Kalsar Zaman. Uh, yes. It's at K-A-W-S-A-R underscore Z-A-M-A-N because he's doing fantastic work. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we will be back at some stage, I am sure. Buy the printed product if you haven't. Until then, until when? I'm not sure. <laughs> I've really you, screwed up this me. ending, haven't I? Really <laughs> screwed it up. I'll tell you what. We'll speak to you later. Here's, here's Mr. Campbell with his bagpipes. Here you go. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.